Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Hear now the word of the living God. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. This is the word of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, once more this day, we come to you beseeching you that you might give us aid by your spirit to properly hear and to properly preach the word. We pray that we might find encouragement here in the pages of Holy Scripture, that we might revere and honor and consider ourselves privileged to stand upon your word. Help us now, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this evening, my goal or my attempted goal is quite simple. I hope by God's grace to accomplish at least in part our goal, but it's really a twofold goal. I want us to consider the glories of Christ and I want us to consider how we read our Bibles. Let me say that again. I want us to consider the glories of Christ and I want us to consider how We ought to read our Bibles. In Hebrews chapter 2, this early sermon of the early church, we have a discussion of the glories of Christ. Hebrews is a glorious sermon filled with a discussion, among other things, of the glories of Christ. And in chapter 2, towards the end, we read this bold statement that Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of glory, was made like unto us in every way, that he might be our faithful high priest. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting for him who, for whom all are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. There is a discussion in our text and in these verses that I just read of Jesus Christ partaking in flesh and blood. Jesus Christ being tempted. Jesus Christ suffering. Jesus Christ having a physical body of flesh and blood. Jesus Christ dying. And yet, this ought to raise the question, isn't Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, truly God? And of course, the answer is a resounding yes, boys and girls. The man named Jesus 
who put on flesh and dwelt among us is the eternal Son of God. He has always existed, not as a man, but according to his divine nature. The living God is one God existing forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet we read in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, some things that do not at least initially seem to square with the discussion of God throughout the rest of the Bible. For instance, Malachi 3.6 says that God doesn't change. And yet in Hebrews 2, we read that Jesus changed quite a bit. He changed from living to dying. He changed from being not tempted to being tempted. He changed in, as the book of Hebrews will say, his learning. Malachi 3.6, though, says God doesn't change. James 1.13 says that God is not tempted. James 1.17 says that God does not experience shifts of any kind. 1 John 3.20 says that God doesn't learn. Boys and girls, think about that. God doesn't learn. It's because the triune God, the living God, knows all things. There is no knowledge out there that God doesn't have. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, informs us that God doesn't have form or body. And so this may leave us with questions. Can everything that these verses say about God still be true if Jesus, the Son of God, who is fully God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and, as these five verses declare, did indeed learn and suffer and was tempted and even died? What about the seeming contradictions between these two? We've said just tonight that God cannot learn anything new, that he doesn't change. And yet it appears that Jesus did. God is immortal, boys and girls, which means not killable, not dieable. And yet Jesus died. James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted. And yet our text says that Jesus was Tempted and suffered in temptation. And yet the scriptures make clear that God doesn't change. In fact, God isn't acted upon by creatures outside of himself. No creature can produce a change to include a suffering change in God. What are we to make of these things? And of course, those of you Boys and girls that have been studying your catechism know, I think, Pastor Ryan, it's because Jesus Christ has always been truly and fully God. And yet he became or assumed our humanity. He's also fully man. One person with two natures. And this, of course, is the case. And so I want us to consider briefly the glories of This one person with two complete natures. And then I want us to consider how we ought to consider reading our Bibles because of this. Let's walk through Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. 
That is the devil. And of course, wasn't this the problem, the promise from the very beginning? We referenced it this morning in Lord's Day morning worship, Genesis 3.15. There is going to come a seed of the woman and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. The first thing that I think we see here in our text is that we are to notice the true humanity of Christ in flesh. Notice that our text says that Jesus is said to have taken on flesh because we share in flesh. In a brief comparison with angels here, it is human beings that receive his aid and it is the nature of human beings, the human nature that Christ assumed unto himself, as the text says, that through death he might destroy the devil. See, one of the reasons why Jesus put on our flesh is that he might taste death. For God cannot die. Notice the true humanity of Christ in the flesh, but also in these verses, notice the true humanity of Christ in death. Verse 14 says that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, setting up this passage, says this, and it's a little bit of a purpose clause for our text. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. You see, the true and full and complete and whole humanity of Christ is absolutely necessary for the salvation of God's people. And in our text and others like it, notice the true and full humanity of Christ and that it declares his humanity and it discusses that according to his humanity, he tasted death. But as we continue in our text, look at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren or brothers and sisters, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice the true humanity of Christ in suffering. Verse 17 says, therefore, or perhaps your version says, so that. Jesus put on our flesh so that he could make propitiation. Boys and girls, that's a word that we don't often use, propitiation. It does mean to make atonement for sin. But perhaps we could say it would even be a better translation to say, an even better definition to say that propitiation is taking away wrath from one, taking it on to oneself. In other words... Jesus has taken the wrath of God that we deserve. But atonement for sin could not be accomplished if Jesus had not put on flesh. 
He has become our complete and full representative. Of course, this is one of the glories of the gospel, isn't it? But think of this. The eternal son of God, the one who has always existed, who, by the way, has always been the son of God. There is never a time when the son was not. And there was never a time when the son was not the eternal son of the father. And yet at a moment in time, this second person of the Trinity assumed to himself our true and full humanity made like unto us in every way except without sin. We notice in this text the reference to his true humanity and putting on flesh in dying in suffering. And then perhaps fourthly in verse 18, notice the true humanity of Christ in temptation. Look at verse 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Notice the true humanity of Christ in temptation. And notice that the temptation of Jesus comes on the heels of Jesus being made like us in every respect. Yet without sin. Of course, we read in the book of James chapter one. Verse 13, as was previously referenced, these words. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. Of course, we know that there is no contradiction in the word of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was tempted But he was only tempted according to his humanity. What's going on here? God is one God in three persons. And this simple, infinite, unchanging God cannot change, cease to be, suffer or be tempted. And yet all of these things, in one way or another, are attributed to our Savior. What is going on in this discussion? And for this, we need to put on our theological thinking caps for a moment. Let me give you a few terms to consider. Theologians like Cyril of Alexander and John Calvin and the reformers and the post-reformers will call what we're discussing tonight The communication of properties. The communication of properties. Of course, you might be thinking, don't they call this the hypostatic union? Well, yes, they do. Don't they call this the the one Lord with two natures? Well, yes, they do. But listen, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is one person with two natures. A human nature and a divine nature. And both of these natures have a set of attributes. And where these attributes meet is in the person and not in the natures. Now let me describe what I mean. Boys and girls, think about baby Jesus laying in a manger. According to his humanity, he's crying, he's hungry, he's sleepy. 
He's weak. He is able to be attacked should someone attack him. He needs his mother. He needs his earthly adoptive father. And yet at the same time that he is laying there in the manger, the scripture says that he, the second person of the Trinity, upholds all things by the very word of his power. And yet we don't have two persons. We have one person. Jesus isn't two Jesuses, one God and one man. No, he is one person with two distinct natures. And these natures do not change. It's not as though his divine nature gives some gifts of divinity over to his human nature, thus making him not really truly human. And it's not as though his human nature gives some humanness over to his divine nature so that God is slightly changed and slightly becomes something that God hasn't always been by virtue of Jesus being man. No. The communication of properties is the idea that we have one Lord and Savior, one truly divine and yet human person, and that these two natures communicate their properties, their attributes to the person. So when we read our Bibles, we see Jesus acting according to both natures, but each nature doing what is proper unto itself. And for those of you that like big theological terms, this is what is called the communication of properties. Long ago, Cyril of Alexander coined this term. It's a term that's used by Calvin. Another way of saying this is that what can be said of one nature of Jesus cannot, without qualification, be said of the other. When Jesus sleeps in the boat with his disciples, he's sleeping according to his humanity. But when Jesus is described, when the second person of the Trinity is described as upholding all things by the very word of his power, he does so according to his divinity. We can say, for instance, that the person, Jesus, is omnipresent. But you can't say that his human nature is omnipresent. You can say that Jesus grew in knowledge. Or didn't he? The scriptures say this. He was a boy. He was a teenager. He was a young man. He grew in wisdom and favor with God and with men. You can say that he grew in knowledge, but you can't say that his divine nature grew in knowledge. You can say that Jesus died, but you can't say that God died. I remember years ago preaching a sermon from this pulpit, and I don't even remember the text or the context. And I remember saying, God died for sins. He died. And of course, oftentimes the scripture uses language like this. But even in that moment, it could be further clarified. For when we say that Jesus, the son of God, who is God, died, we mean that according to his humanity, he suffered and died. You can say Jesus was hungry and needed food, but you cannot say that divinity was hungry and needed food. You can say that Jesus suffered. But you cannot say that God was acted upon and suffered according to his divinity. Perhaps one more. You can say that Jesus experiences changes as he grows. We see that in the pages of scripture as he walks among us. But he does so according to his humanity. 
You cannot say that God changed in some way in the incarnation. God never changes. You see, the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity assuming a new nature, a human nature, a creaturely nature. At the selfsame time, the triune God not changing. What cannot be said of God, of divinity, can be said of the person of the Son, because he put on flesh. And notice what our text says. He did all of these things. Why? That he may be like us, that he may suffer and die and be a sympathetic high priest, because he was made like unto us. Some 1,500 years ago, a council of Christians was called. And out of that series of meetings, a creed or a definition was given. Listen to this. This is part of what we call the Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian creed. It goes like this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial or equal with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial equal with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Do you see what's happening there? I know it sounds kind of technical, but human nature and the divine nature have properties and they're preserved. They don't change. They don't mix. Jesus Christ was like us, according to his humanity. He wasn't a special God man that had humanity that was infused with divinity so that he's not really like us. He's the second Adam who, according to his flesh, died, who, according to his flesh, lived a perfect life. The creed continues. But rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons. But one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Now, this definition just arises from the pages of Scripture as these men and as we read the Bible with the faithful down through the ages, we see that God is one God existing forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that at a moment in time, the second person, the Son, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, took on flesh and became like unto us in every way. This text tells us why. That He may do all that is necessary to save us. Things 
that must be done according to humanity, and yet things that as done are upheld by his divinity. Well, you might say to yourself, these ancient creeds, isn't there a way to kind of simplify them? I know we have the word of God. Couldn't we modernize them just a little bit? Well, I'm glad that you asked. If you look at our church statement of faith, essentially verbatim you have in chapter 8, paragraph 2, what sounds almost exactly like this ancient creed. Listen to what it says. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governs all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was come, take unto him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures. So that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and men. And yet the book of Hebrews tells us of the glories of this reality. This isn't just theological speculation, is it? It helps us to see the glories of Christ and what he does for his people. Let me give you three examples. Three examples of the glories of Christ. And then we'll close with the question of how to read our Bibles. Number one, because Jesus took on flesh, we can have forgiveness For sins. Look at our text. Verse 17 says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then verse 15 says, similarly, that he works, that he might destroy by death the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, beginning the context of our passage, says that he was made like us, that he might taste death. Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity is the sacrifice for sin, yet flesh was necessary to do this. But because of the infinite worth of the person, Jesus' sacrifice was of infinite value. Think of this, friend. Have you ever thought about your lifetime of sin? And then think about all of the true Christians down through the ages who committed sins, sins for which Christ died. And the, the regular ways of doing mathematics will fail us. For this would be billions, if not trillions of sins Thoughts, words, deeds. How is it that Christ could die and his sacrifice be of infinite worth? Of course, 
as he suffers according to his humanity and dies according to his humanity, the weight of who he is in his person gives infinite value to the sacrifice that he has made for you, which is why we can say over and over and over, Christian, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the very next week, say the same thing. This Christ's sacrifice was not a temporary sacrifice that is only worth a certain amount financial, spiritual capital. No, because He took on flesh, we can have forgiveness for sin because Christ, who died according to His humanity, was the eternal Son of God. But secondly, because Jesus became like us, we have the love of God made visible, don't we? We have the love of God made visible. Hebrews 2, 17, the first part, Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus images God for us. It could be said like this, He makes God known by making infinite attributes available to finite minds in finite ways by our seeing them fleshed out And the Son of God who walks among us, who pitches His tent among us. God is love. And God's love is not changing. God cannot grow in love. He doesn't shift. God is not looking down at each of us Christians and saying, Ah, you did well, my child. Now I love you more. I am growing in love for you. God is infinite love. In fact, the Scripture says that He doesn't have love. At its core, God is love. How can our finite minds grasp this infinite love? Well, we cannot fully grasp it. And yet, in part, we see it fleshed out in Jesus. We see it fleshed out as He's healing the sick. We see it in verses like we studied this morning, that this Jesus, this tender, gentle one, will not tear a bruised reed and cut it down. We see it in Jesus' cry. And He's standing at the entrance of Jerusalem with arms outstretched perhaps saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that you had repented! Because Jesus became like us, we have the love of God made visible. You see, Jesus was and is truly God. And yet He was and is truly a man. Boys and girls, it's important for you to hear this part. Jesus didn't stop being human after he ascended to heaven. Some people think that. They think that Jesus kind of, for a while, he became human and did all the things that the Bible says that he did. And that when he rose, he kind of got rid of his humanity and now he's just fully God again. No, Jesus was and is Truly, fully man. His flesh wasn't a sheet simply covering over his divinity. He's fully human and fully divine. So when you see Jesus walking among the streets of Jerusalem in the Word, when you see him saying to the Apostle Paul, or who would become the Apostle Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You're coming after my people. 
And when you persecute them, you're coming after me. Because Jesus took on flesh, we can have forgiveness of sins. But because he became like us, we have the love of God made visible. But thirdly, another glorious reality of Christ and his two natures is that because Jesus became man, we can see a sympathetic Lord. Verse 18 of chapter 2. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. If you flip over a Chapter 2 to Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, you read this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let that sink in. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This sympathy is not Jesus giving approval to our sin, but rather being able as our representative to say that he has been through the very temptations that we have been through from without and yet has passed the test. It is not wrong to say that our sympathetic high priest identifies with our temptations, yet he is the only one who didn't fail. We have a sympathetic high priest. Specifically because he has put on flesh. These are glorious realities. You know, maybe as we began our discussion tonight and the word, as we began this sermon tonight, you're thinking, oh, this sounds kind of technical. This is interesting for those who really love to get into the deep terms of theology. But how is this practical? Well, it's immensely practical because the scripture says that all of this All of this, yes, was for the glory of God, but all of this was for your salvation, friend. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that or so that or because through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. The glories of Christ on display as we think about the theological truths of the two natures of Christ. But as we close, the other component, how should we read our Bibles because of this? Well, one simple thing. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, we must read Scripture accordingly. This actually helps us to read our Bibles. Just two simple examples and we're finished. Turn over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is Jesus praying in the garden. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, is this Jesus praying? I gave up my divine nature, O Lord. We changed, you and me, Father. 
I shed my divinity and I put on humanity and now I want you to glorify me again. Or, as Jesus prays in the garden, is he praying, in some sense, not as a changed divine being, but as one who has put on flesh and has done all the will of the Father, that the Father may be glorified and that he may be glorified. But one other example. Mark chapter 14 and verse 36. What are we to make of passages like this? Another prayer of Jesus in the garden. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, we may have a theological problem here on our hands. Because here we have Jesus saying that it's the Father's will that ought to be done. And that he subordinates his will to the Father's will. But are we to say then that we have three gods who each have a distinct will? Absolutely not. Our God is one God, existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with one will. Not three wills, one will. But when we know that the Scriptures make clear that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is truly God with one will, and yet truly man... We can read this prayer and understand that according to his work as the Redeemer, he's praying according to his humanity. He's not saying that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have wills that are at odds. No, the one who is in agony at the thought of bearing the wrath of God, drinking the cup to the dregs, is praying out like you and I would pray out, yet without sin. Your will be done. The Puritan William Perkins writes these words of those things which are spoken or attributed to Christ. Some are only understood of his divine nature. John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Colossians 1, 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Some, again, agree only to his humanity as born, suffered, dead, buried, Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Lastly, other things are understood only of both natures united together. Matthew 17.5, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. End quote. Perkins is absolutely right. Understanding that Christ is one person with two natures reveals a glory to us about our salvation that we will be mining for all of the ages. Heaven will not be ever a day where you have mined all of the riches of your salvation in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But the two natures of Christ also teaches us, when we understand them correctly, how to read our Bibles. Brothers and sisters, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 reveals to us 
the glories of Jesus Christ. And they aid us as we consider the question of how to rightly read our Bibles. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that you might help us. Oftentimes, deep theological truths may seem confusing or perhaps too abstract. And yet here we have a theological truth which is intricate and yet which reveals to us the glorious gospel of the Son. We pray that as we take up our Bibles, even in the week ahead, that we might remember that we have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one person who is fully and truly God. May he be praised. And fully and truly man, the one who laid down his life as a ransom. Help us, O Lord. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.